The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Uh, you're listening to KUCI in Irvine at 88.9 on your radio and www.kuci.org on your computer. And this is Privacy Piracy. And I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer. And actually today I'm the show's host because our host is busy being interviewed by me today. So I will read uh, Mari's full bio here. Mari Frank, attorney and privacy consultant, is the creator of the Identity Theft Survival Kit, the audio cassette series Identity Theft Prevention and Survival, co-author of Privacy Piracy with Beth Givens, and author of two books published by Porpoise Press. From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft, and Safeguard Your Identity, protecting yourself with a personal privacy audit. audit. Not Audi, but audit. Mari is also the host of this show, Privacy Piracy, our weekly one-hour show. And she's testified many times on privacy and identity theft issues in the California legislature and the U.S. Congress. In May 1999, she was summoned to the White House to a press conference with President Clinton to speak on consumer privacy. Her speech was broadcast on C-SPAN TV this year. Mari's 90-minute PBS special, television special, actually it was last year, Identity Theft, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age, aired nationwide. Both of her new books were featured gifts for viewers who pledged support for the local PBS stations. Mari consults with corporations and government agencies and provides professional training programs. She also helps victims and consumers and serves on the Identity Theft Task Force of the L.A. County District Attorney and California's DMV Task Force on Privacy. She's an Orange County Sheriff Reserve on the High Tech Crime Unit and Advisory Board Member of the Identity Theft Resource Center and the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Mari's also a, a research fellow with the Poneman Institute on privacy issues. She was appointed to the State of California's Advisory Board of the Office of Privacy Protection. Mari's a certified trainer for the State Bar, a law professor, and currently teaches conflict management here at UCI. She serves on the National Advisory Board of Divorce Magazine also. She's appeared on dozens of national TV programs, including Dateline, 48 Hours, O'Reilly Factor, Investigative Reports, NBC and ABC Nightly News, CNN, a bunch more. She's been interviewed more than 250 times on different radio shows. She's been, and this will be, I guess, 251. Huh? Right. She's been featured... Tons of times in major n- newspapers and magazines. For instance, you know, U.S. News and World Report, Your Money Magazine, Money Parade Magazine, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Chicago, Chicago Tribune, the L.A. Times, The Register. And many of her articles have been published in legal journals and numerous magazines. And you can find out... More about her if you want to go to the wide, wide web, world wide web, identitytheft.org, 
or KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And also, you can just go to marifrank.com. So, Mari, welcome. Well, thank you, Lloyd, my engineer turned host. Yep. I guess we're actually on opposite sides of the table. That's right. <laughs> in theory, anyways, not really. We're in our same spots. Yeah, this is good for you. This is, this is a good chance for you to give me some questions here. It's really an important issue that's facing our country when we, when we see that there's 10 million new victims per year. Right? Yeah. So you want to ask me some questions or, or what? Sure. Well, yeah, I'm just I'm st I'm being an engineer here and adjusting okay. the volume. So. Well, th that's that's a problem that we have. We we hear more about things like identity <clears throat> theft insurance. We hear things about security breaches. Those are the kinds of things we need to talk about today because I think most people don't think about it when they're so busy in their lives until they get that fateful call. That's right. So um, how did you become an expert on identity theft, anyways? Well, Lloyd, you know I became an expert by necessity. This wasn't something that I said, oh, that's going to be something I'm going to study. It was more like I had to because in 1996, I got a call from a credit card company that I'd never heard of asking me why I had not paid my $11,000 bill to them. And I said, wait a minute. What are you talking about? I don't know who you are. And I found out at that point that I myself was the victim of identity theft, and my impersonator had actually gotten over $50,000 in my name, Lloyd. And um, not only that, but she was parading as an attorney. She took my professional identity as well as my personal identity, and I had no idea who she was. And in fact, I never, ever met her and never really knew who she was until I saw her when Dateline did my story. So what happened to her? Well, this, let me explain, first of all, how she got caught. Um, when I got my credit reports and I saw that there was a, uh, an inquiry from a company that I hadn't heard of called CBS Mortgage, um, I, I decided, my goodness, you know, I have to find out more about what this is. And when I got the call from uh, the credit card company that I hadn't heard of, which was a, a former predecessor of uh, Chase Bank, it was the Bank of New York and Delaware. Um, I, I forced them to send me all the documents, and I saw an address. And when I saw that address, it was in Ventura, California. And I tried to do a, you know, a title search to see if I could find you know, who owns this house, and it didn't come up. So finally, after being turned down by my local Orange County Sheriff at that time and the, civil, the Secret Service who said it, you know, it wasn't a high enough jurisdictional, $50,000 wasn't enough loss for them to pursue it. The FBI said it wasn't their jurisdiction. Finally, I called the um, Ventura police. And oddly enough, the watch commander who answered the phone, Lloyd, said to me that he was a victim himself. He asked me if I had applied for credit uh, to apply for a new loan for my house, and I said, no, I had not. And he told me that when he and his wife tried to refinance their home, they filled out a loan application, which has everything on it, you know, right. your birthday, your social security number, everything. And what happened to them was they were living in identity theft hell for over a year. So I gave him the address that was on the credit card that, that the woman had applied for credit. And uh, he went out, to, he sent a lieutenant out there, and there was a woman there. And they asked her, do you know Mari Frank? And she said, she started to stutter, and then she said, oh, she must have lived here. We get mail for her all the time. 
And the lieutenant called me up and he said, did you ever live in Ventura? And I said, I've never been to Ventura. So then they did a background check on her and guess what? She was on probation for shoplifting. So they, as a condition of her probation, they could go and go back and search her home. And Lloyd, when they went back and searched her home, they found a room full of me. And that was, she, yeah, she had uh, checking accounts. She had credit card statements. Um, she had uh, a lawsuit uh, against her, against me at her house for thrifty rental car for the car that she rented and totaled. And she had bank accounts. And by the way, her handwriting was very nice. That's how you know it isn't me because her handwriting is so much better than mine. Yep. Anyway, so what they did was they arrested her. And when they arrested her, she immediately got out on bail. And she got an attorney. And she's still doing it today. And what ended up happening was after about eight or nine months of the, the you know, dilly-dallying around, she pled guilty to six counts of credit card fraud. But because they have so many people in jail, and even though she had a prior, they gave her a two-month work furlough program still driving the red convertible that she bought using my credit and that's how she got back and forth to work i found out subsequent to that that uh, she got picked up in another state for doing this to someone else so i don't know where she is now but the interesting thing is she was a methamphetamine addict and methamphetamine and identity theft go together like a horse and carriage and people don't realize that that methamphetamine is a um is is really something that people people who get hooked on it have to get money and they have to get money quick and a lot of them don't want to carry a gun don't want to be involved with you know hard crime so they think okay I'll just steal somebody's social security number they they get data they sell the data mm -hmm. they trade the data for methamphetamine right. so let, let me ask you uh, is she like a typical uh, identity thief or is it does it lean more towards like organized criminals and yeah that's really a good question Lloyd because when we try to look at what is the typical identity thief there are kind of classes of identity thief mm -hmm. um, when you think of a lot of crime you know felonies you think of violent crime and we know that most violent crime is committed by males okay but in this particular type of crime there's a lot of females that do it, and because they don't have to use a gun, they don't have to use force, they don't have to use violence, all they have to do is use a credit card, and everybody can use a credit card very easily. Okay. Especially females. Especially females, that's true. A lot of practice. Exactly. No, we don't want to be, you know, uh, gender biased here, but so, so in terms of there is a class of women that they have profiled that are women in their 30s, usually a single mom, one who gets involved in methamphetamine, and, and then they get involved in identity theft. So those are the women that are usually involved. As far as the men, it's the same class, usually in their 30s, often methamphetamines. But then we've also got the security breach people who, who and the Nigerian fraud rings and the Russian mafia that is sitting, you know, they could be sitting at their kitchen table in Russia and they're online and they're they're stealing identities so it there is no one you know typical type of profile but it can anyone can do it unfortunately and that's what's really scary but usually those who will do it often are are white-collar criminals but lately we found out that this is another issue that's come into 
in just the recent years when the white collar criminals were getting into jail and they were talking to the hardcore criminals the hardcore criminals are saying why am i using a gun and and holding up a bank and getting fifty thousand dollars or or holding up a jewelry store and getting a hundred thousand dollars when i can actually just steal an, a few identities and make three, four hundred thousand dollars. So now the hardened criminals are getting into the act, and that's what we've seen in recent years. So they're all making a career change. Career it, change, it exactly. Out. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, information brokers, and uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit more yeah. about what, what's an information broker? Okay. Well. You, you've probably heard this year about the, the many breaches that we had actually last year with uh, ChoicePoint, which is an, who is an information broker, broker LexisNexis, Axiom. Information brokers are companies that gather profiles on you and me, and they sell those as background checks. They sell them to law enforcement. They sell them to government. They sell them to insurance, lawyers, people who supposedly have a, a permissible purpose. So the kinds of things that are in these data broker files, for example, ChoicePoint has a product called AutoTrack, and in it has everything about you, your, your birth date, your social security number, all the homes you've ever lived in, the addresses that you've lived at, um, criminal violations that you've had. Uh, if, if you've been married, if you've been divorced, all your public records, which would include, you know, uh, family members, even have your uh, your neighbors that live in the neighborhood are neighbors in there. Neighbors, too. Yeah, it doesn't have their social security numbers, but it could have your kids' social security numbers. It has all the people that you're related to, you know, one step away or two step away or three step away. You can You can ask that. I mean, I just recently had a background check that I did on you, right? Right. <laughs> and we did it on me. So um, there are tons of information, and people say, well, wait a minute. I'm not doing business with ChoicePoint or LexisNexis or Axiom, and that's true. You are not their customer. So how, how many of these outfits are there? Well, if you just go to the computer and you do a search on Google or Yahoo or whatever and you and you type in background check, literally thousands of information brokers will come up. Now, a lot of those might be fly-by-night, um, and some are more expensive than others. But for a fee, you can buy people's social security numbers, which is the key to the kingdom of identity theft. Mm -hmm. And you can buy as much information as you want on them. You know, it, it, it costs you, but you can buy it. And there are some companies that are better than others. Um, but what's scary is there's no oversight. And you were asking me, well... What about these information brokers and how does that affect identity theft? Well, for example, in the ChoicePoint case, ChoicePoint allows businesses to purchase their products. So in this particular case, back in February of 2005, they allowed 50 bogus companies that were a Nigerian fraud mm -hmm. ring to go to Kinko's and download profiles of people, and including their credit reports, because ChoicePoint is really an offshoot of Equifax, and Equifax is one of the three major credit reporting companies. So these people who became victims, and I know that originally there were over 750 just in the Los Angeles area, um, 
became victims of identity theft because their information was stolen with their social security number, their birth, their birth date, and lots of sensitive information. So how many victims a year are we talking? Well, last year there was 9.9 million new victims of identity theft, according to the Federal Trade Commission. And just recently I spoke with Joanna Crane, who heads the Identity Fraud Department in the Federal Trade Commission. She's a lawyer with them. And they're coming out with a, a new survey in about March yeah. of 2006, uh, the end of March. So we'll know then. But at least as far as last year, 10, 10 million. And we don't even know if that's all of them because, you know, how do they get reported? Yeah, right. I mean, a lot of people don't report it. They don't know what to do first. They don't know what to do second. Um, police do not report to any spe special agency. All right. The no one reports. I mean, I don't want people to rep millions of people to report to me. There should be a central repository. The Federal Trade Commission is similar to a central repository, but a lot of people don't know to go there. And when they go to the website, the website clearly says we can't help you individually. So victims might say, well, they have to go someplace know, else. Yeah, immediately. I mean, they, they look at the website. They have great information, <clears throat> but they can't get individual help. So they leave and they don't want to bother necessarily to write a complaint and say, I'm a victim of criminal identity theft or financial identity theft. So it's really a win win situation for Experian and uh, the other. Uh, yeah, the two credit bureaus. Credit bureaus, because uh, then they can sell credit monitoring. Right. When you become a victim, then. Uh, yep. They. Ka-ching, ka-ching. They make more money. Well, see, that's what's really frustrating for privacy advocates because what happens is this. Often it is really the credit bureaus and the credit card companies and the financial industry that really facilitates this crime. The banks. Yeah. So this is how it happens, Lloyd. Um, you get my Social Security number and you decide to apply for credit in my name. Now, if the credit, what happens next is when, when someone, when a credit card company gets your application, what's the first thing that they're going to do? Approve it. <laughs> well, yeah, probably. <laughs> but before they approve it, they should be seeing if you're credit worthy, right? Right. So, so when you apply for any kind of credit, whether it's a credit card or a loan or a mortgage or, or anything like that, you fill out a loan application, you put your social security number, and by, by virtue of actually filling out that application, you're giving a permissible purpose for them to pull your credit report. Right. So they pull your credit report, and what they're supposed to do is see, is there a match between the name, the social security number, the address, and all the things that you gave them? Is there a match to see if you are really the person you say you are? And most of these companies are in such a hurry. They just don't do it. That they don't look for the match. And one of the biggest issues is they don't see if, for example, uh, Lloyd Boshaw lives in Laguna Niguel or Lloyd Boshaw lives in Phoenix, Arizona. If they see Lloyd Boshaw suddenly living in Phoenix, Arizona, and he really lives in Laguna Niguel, what happens? Well, they say, oh, he must have moved instead of verifying that indeed you did not move. So what can happen is you apply, someone applies for a, a new credit card in your name in Phoenix, Arizona. The credit card goes to Phoenix, Arizona. And I never know about it. You don't know about it. Yeah. You don't know about it till it goes in collections, and maybe you want to buy a new car. Then they find my old address all of a sudden. Yeah, then suddenly they find your old address, <laughs> and they say, okay, and your phone number, and they say, hey, how come you haven't paid your bill? And that's what happened to me. Here I was living in Laguna Niguel, California, and suddenly someone applies for credit in Ventura, California, and what do they do? They issue her credit in a heartbeat to the tune of a $10,000 credit card. 
Okay, that's why it went, and then when it went into collections, that's when they called me. So the, the, the real issue is, is that the financial industry really helps this to happen because if they were more careful on verifying who you are and looking at matching your address and your phone number and, you know, calling you or whatever, if there's something, you know, on your credit report, you have a phone number. And we suggest that you put your cell phone number so somebody can call you. And if they would do that, or at least send a postcard. Now, years ago, when I was a victim of identity theft, the post, uh, the postal inspector um, would not do anything to help me to stop sending new credit card offers to Ventura to my imposter. Because even while she was out on bail, she's accepting credit like it's candy. And I can't stop it. So well, right. Well, she had to pay for an attorney and stuff. Right, right. Of course. I mean, poor thing. So meanwhile, um, I finally had to call the postal inspector in Washington, D.C., and I said, this is ridiculous. And he said, well, you have to call the carrier and tell him not to deliver pre-approved offers to that address with your name. So I did. But meanwhile, I wrote a letter, and I said, it, it doesn't take very much for the postal inspector to, to do this. When they see a change of address, they should send a postcard to the previous address and the new address and then it asks say if you haven't moved notify us immediately and so that's one of the things that they have implemented in recent years if you move you'll find out that you're going to get that credit that postcard and indeed if you haven't moved and you get one of those you better darn well call immediately because that means something is happening that shouldn't be happening yeah that's you know, I, I, I remember when that happened when uh, you talked to him into kind of browbeat him into doing that. And I, I was wondering how effective that is with the post office, how many notices they actually send out. that They automatically, a lot of people have told me that when they've moved, they, the postcard comes. They get, they get yeah. the card. Yeah, and, and so I think if the post office can do it, surely the credit card companies can do it. But um, I have spoken. Well, they raise the price of stamps, you know, so. Well, yeah, that's That's probably true. a direct effect but, right yeah, there. that's probably. Probably very well. costly implementation. Well, I spoke with someone, um, with a uh, general counsel for a major credit card company, and I'm not going to say which credit card company it is, but we were at a bar conference speaking on identity theft, and I said to this person, look, when you get a credit card application and the address doesn't match, instead of issuing, you cr issuing credit right away, why don't you call the number that's on the credit report, or why don't you send the postcard and he and he said to me Mari people want instant credit they don't want to wait if they don't get it with us they'll go to another company and I said okay so why don't you do this why don't you send the postcard and you can begin the process of implementing you know the 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 new account but if you if you send the postcard out right away and you hear back that it's fraudulent You'll stop it. You'll have early intervention, and you'll save the company money because you're going to be responsible. So um, he, he still didn't really go for it, but those are like simple things. Too simple. Yeah. So the Federal Trade Commission is, is um, implementing some new uh, rules with regard to safeguarding and verifying identity that will be coming out soon. But, but it's still Rules or laws? Well... We, ha we had some laws passed in 2003 that became effective in 2004. It was called the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act. And that, that law um, actually directed the Federal Trade Commission to come up with some regulations to implement that law. So it's, it's law, but it's basically 
implemented by the regulations of the Federal Trade Commission. Sounds complicated. It is complicated. And, and you know, what consumers really understand is like you have, if you're a victim of identity theft, you have a lot of duties that you have to do in order to be able to clean up, you know, your life according to the law. But the reality is, the unfairness of it is, what consumers know this law. Right. You know, I mean, even in my book, From Victim to Victor, I explain the law in Chapter 3 very simply. You have these rights and these obligations, and this is how you do it. But, you know, how many people have seen that? How many people understand it? Most of the laws are so convoluted anyway, you don't know what it means, and it has to be interpreted by a court. Right. It's, it's really not fair, I don't think, to consumers to expect them to know exactly what to do. They should be told and guided. But what actually happens is they're not told and guided. Well, let's talk about that book. I remember when you were writing it. and uh, Which one? From Victim to Victor, your step-by-step guide. Mm-hmm. So um, I know that... Uh, a lot of that stuff wasn't available to you, and then you kind of compiled it, like how you dug yourself out of the hole and then yeah. uh, uh, made a f- compilation of uh, like a workbook for uh, people to right. to fix their own credit problems because yeah. the bank isn't going to fix it for you. Exactly. Now, you know, when I first got that fateful call and I found out I was a victim and I ended up doing all of this research to figure out what happened and I became a, like a little private investigator for myself, um, I thought because I'm an attorney, because I'm not shy, you can, you, you know, I, I know how to open my mouth, I know how to ask for what I want. Um, I thought it was going to take me a couple weeks. So, you know, at first I'm just like writing on a yellow pad, and I'm realizing that they don't believe me. They think I'm a malinger. I don't want to pay my bills. They're asking me for a ton of information that I don't even have, and they don't want to give me any for information. So with that, um, and worse yet, at that time, we didn't even have any laws making identity theft a crime in this state, nor federally. So in other words, if you were a victim of identity theft, you go to the police, they go, we can't even give you a police report because you're not the victim of the crime. The credit card company is because they're the ones that are losing the money. So if you didn't get, and then the catch-22 is if you didn't have a police report. That was totally outrageous. Yeah. If, if you didn't have a police report, then you also could not clean up the mess because they wouldn't believe you. So we, we had, you know, in 1998, we passed our first legislation to, to make identity theft a crime. So what had happened was. was it California or U.S.? Was in California. And then yeah. we, in, in 1999, we got our federal statute when I testified in Congress on the Identity Theft Deterrence Act. But since then, every state now has identity theft statute. We have um, much better laws in California than anywhere in the country. And we have even established some other laws like the secu- security breach law that we can talk about in a minute. But, but let me get back to the, 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 the real pressure is on the victim. You basically have to prove your innocence rather than, you know, um, you're not... You, you're not innocent till proven guilty. You're guilty till proven innocent, and that's the way it is with this crime. So there's your book helps a lot, and then there. What other resources are available to victims? Okay, there? well, well, let me just tell you what you have to do. If you're a victim of identity theft, not only do you have to call the credit reporting agencies and first put a fraud alert, mm-hmm. and they'll only put a fraud alert for 90 days unless you write a detailed letter, and that detailed letter has to have an affidavit telling what happened, signing under penalty of perjury. It also has to have your driver's license, of a uh, utility bill to show that you really live there, and a police report that lists all of the fraud. So okay. fraud alert, 
what's that? What's that do to your uh, credit report? What's it saying? Okay. Just says fraud alert. What happens when somebody okay, says? Okay, no. What what it says is when you put a fraud alert on your credit profile with the three major credit reporting agencies, it mm -hmm. says, "Do not issue credit without calling me first at this phone number." So, when you call to put a fraud alert on your credit report, you call a fraud number for the credit reporting agencies, which we have on our website at identitytheft.org, and what. You will only get a voice prompt. You're not going to get a human. You're not going to get a monkey. You're just going to get a voice prompt. Of course not. And, and you will have to give your social security number. And you will have to give some other personal information. And then they will ask you for the number that you want. My suggestion is that you give your cell phone number if you carry a cell phone. Because if you're out and about and you're not home and and, and you want to apply for credit, you want to buy a car on a Sunday, you're you got to run home and answer the phone. Yeah. How are you going to yeah. do that? So if you're if you're at the car dealership on a Sunday afternoon, you want to buy the car, if they call you on your cell phone, you can answer the phone and say, yes, this is me. I'm buying the car. Otherwise, you cannot. You can't get instant credit. So that's really important. Now, the fraud alert. What does it do, you ask me? The fraud alert is supposed to give notice to anyone who might issue you credit that, hey, you better call first because I've been a victim of fraud or I'm concerned about fraud or I've gotten a you know, I've been the victim of a security breach. Now. But it's up to the discretion of whoever's trying to sell you something, right? Well, Whether yeah. they recognize it or. Yeah. In other words, the credit card companies hire these promotional people temporary. And if they, whoever is processing this uh, credit card application, if right. they're in a hurry and they're going to get money right. for, for issuing this, they're not going to be really... Very. Or if there's a car salesman that's only got two deals this month and he's uh, hurting, he yeah. might ignore that little fact just to move another unit out the door. Right. And the bad thing about this is under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, this is really bad news, Lloyd. <laughs> if you are a creditor and you issue credit to a fraudster when there was a fraud alert on the credit report, you can't be sued. So it's like, okay, don't do it, but if you do it, we're not going to do anything to hold you accountable. So that's why a lot of the, the, um, the, fra the fraud alerts are not effective. So in California and now in 19 other states, and by the way, this is what I recommended way back in 1997, we have another thing called a security freeze. And in the state of California, if you've been a victim of identity theft and you have these relentless fraudsters who are going to creditors who issue credit without calling you on the fraud alert, you, you're, you're desperate. So you, what you can do is write to the three credit reporting agencies, Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, and you can ask them to freeze your credit profile. Now, what, and you can, if you're a victim of identity theft, it's free to freeze it and unfreeze it. So what happens is you would write to the credit reporting agencies and say, I'm a victim of fraud. I want to freeze my credit report. Please give me a password so that if I want to go out and buy a house six months from now, I can, as soon as I'm out looking for a house, I will give you my password and you will unfreeze it for mortgage lenders. I can, I can freeze it as to a specific industry like cars you know, car dealerships or credit cards or, or credit cards, or I can unfreeze it as to anyone that might want to give me credit. So, so, but you, but they have to have three days to be able to do it. In other words, so you better give them at least a week. So if you write the letter 
it's going to take a few days to put the freeze on and it's going to take a few days to get the freeze off but at this point in time that's what we have we have a california freeze law and right now the federal government is considering a national security freeze because what's happened is a lot of different states followed what we did but they did it in different ways and these credit reporting agencies said we want to have one law and they just want to have one security freeze law but they want to water it down yeah of course yeah but um so it, th that's what you can do you can do a fraud alert or you can do a security freeze now just think about lloyd if you were the victim of identity theft who are all the people that you are all the entities that you have to contact well it's overwhelming yes it is i mean you have to contact not only all your own uh, all the fraudulent accounts so let's there are a few say, out there yeah so for example if you had um somebody opened up five new credit cards in your name they got a loan they got a mortgage um, they got a driver's license in your name, which is, we had over 100,000 fraudulent licenses that were issued to imposters in, right. in so. recent years. Um, and, and then they can get a, a house or all these things. So so let's say that... Um, yeah, utility companies, yeah. everything. Right. And, and let's say you're a general contractor. What if somebody used your license number? Okay. And then you got sued because of somebody using your name and your license number. Right. right. It, it happens. I mean, I've, happens. I've read about these cases. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've had people call me. All yeah. right. And and let's say that um, they used your social security number and they or let's say that they got your tax refund. We've had problems with the IRS. So these are the entities that you must contact. You must contact all of the companies that issued a fraud account. That's for sure. You have to. And that could be dozens. Right. And and then you have to contact all of the credit reporting agencies, which there's three major ones, Equifax, TransUnion, Experian. Then you have to go to all of your own bank accounts and tell them, hey, change my password. By the way, never use your mother's maiden name because it's on your birth certificate, which is a public record, which is on the internet. What if they insist? You tell them, I'm, I'm, this is, I'm changing my mother's maiden name. Just change it. You know, if they say, I don't have a field to put a password. So you just tell them use the same field but change the password. This is my mother's my mother um, my mother's maiden name, which it really is, but I want to change it to this number. Okay, then you have to contact the Social Security Administration and alert them, because what if somebody's going to work under your name? You Hopefully, have they pay in if they do. Yeah, but if they pay in, that's that could be. But what if they also apply for workers' comp? Disability which, or something? Or disability, exactly. Yeah. I know you, you had that client that called up that uh, tried to get his disability and somebody had already been drawing it for eight years or something yes, and it was gone. Yes, yes, And then I had another guy who got hurt on the job and applied for workers' comp and somebody, he was in Orange County and somebody already was getting that's, workers' comp in San Diego. I think that's the one I was thinking of, yeah. And then I had the doctor that called me who um, tried to file his tax return last year. Remember, his accountant tried to file right. it and then he, they said, you can't file it, you've already filed it and you've already gotten a refund. Right, Okay, yeah. so that... that, that <laughs> You have to contact the IRS and the Franchise Tax Board, and every and the Federal Trade Commission, and then you have to, you know, deal with the police, and you have to write to them to make sure that they follow through on what they're supposed to do, right. and give you an addendum. You have to provide them an addendum once you find out about further fraud. In the DMV and, and the DMV, you know, and every professional license you have. Like, exactly. For example, when I became a victim, and this woman was parading as an attorney, 
I had to call the State Bar because I was afraid I'd be disbarred. I didn't know if she's, she had my business cards. That was another thing they found when they arrested her. They found a stack of my business cards that she had driven from Ventura to Orange County to steal my business cards and pass them out. And then she made it more. So, so there are myriad people that you have to write to. When I was a victim, you know, Lloyd, I had five boxes, banker boxes of correspondence. And, and I had written, you know, dozens and dozens, actually over, over a hundred letters that, and, and I know how to write these letters, you know, and I researched it. So that's why I created the Identity Theft Survival Kit because I had, when I became a victim and, and started working with the, the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse, they would get calls from the media and they'd say, do you have a victim that will talk to us? And Beth Givens, who's the director who's been on this show, and by the way, she's, right. she's coming back on again. Um, she said, well, look, I've got a victim for you. You know, I've got somebody that you really should talk to. So then, you know, Dateline would call or NBC News or, you know, O'Reilly Factor, whomever, all these shows that I've been on, they would call because I was able to tell them. So what would happen? Then I started getting, you know, literally thousands of calls from victims across the country saying, help me, help me, help me. And to be honest with you, I just did not have the stomach to, to, charge anybody so at first i was doing everything for free which i still do you know i have a big case right, going on yeah. right now and and a i couple. said and that's when beth said you know mari put put together the letters you know make the letters um like the ones that you wrote fix them up so anybody can use them fill in the blank put the letters in a cd and give it with your book so i did that back in 1998 i updated it in 2000 and then i i did the brand new book this year this last year 2005, From Victim to Victor, The Guide to Ending the Nightmare of Identity Theft, that has the CD with the legal letters to the IRS, to the Federal Trade Commission, to the various credit reporting agencies and all your credit grantors, collection companies, check, you know, check companies that, and collection companies. So everything is in there so you don't have to hire me or anybody else because it is very time consuming and you know your stuff best. So that's what that book was about. If you, when you questioned me about what's in it, that right. step by step, it's it's not it, you know it's eight and a half by eleven. It's a workbook. It's it's like a coaching guide. Do this this. How to how to deal with the police if they won't give you a report. How to deal with the companies if they don't want to provide you um, copies of the data. I just got a phone call actually today from um, a victim who said that Dell did not want to give them evidence of the fraud. They, they said, subpoena us. Under federal law, you do not have to subpoena, and under California law as well, you do not have to subpoena a, con a company to get evidence of the fraud, to get all the documents. And in fact, what the law says is under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, it says if you're a victim of fraud, you send the police report, you send the affidavit, and you ask the company that issued the fraud account to provide you copies of all the documents of the fraud. They have 30 days to do that, and they have to send it to you at no cost. What if they won't, like Dell? Well, if if they won't, okay. But one of the, the the bad news. This is, is the bad news part. This is the bad news part. You can't sue them under federal law. However, if they don't provide that to you, call me. Or call the Federal Trade Commission at 877-ID-THEFT, and they will call. But usually when I call for someone and, and enlighten the, the general counsel for Dell or whomever it is and say, here is what the law says, and they don't want to be embarrassed in the press, so they will usually comply. But you really can't sue them for not doing it. That's another thing that we lost. 
So, why? What's up with the uh, with Congress? Why do they uh, Why do they suck on this issue? I mean, okay. why Why don't they want to help the consumers? Well, this is the it's problem. an epidemic. It, it it is an epidemic, and on first blush, it looks like they're helping. Like you're seeing right now that that Congress is looking at passing laws about security breaches, which we need to talk about in a minute, and they're looking about more identity theft legislation. But you have to understand who is paying them. Who are the lobbyists in Congress? They are the lobbyists for the big companies. The big companies like American Express, which happens to be one of the better companies for fraud, by the way. And, you know, we have accounts with American Express because they're the best. No, they are good. Um, You know, Visa, MasterCard, um, Experian, Equifax, TransUnion. Chase Bank, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, all these big companies spend a fortune on lobbying. And they ask these uh, legislators to, first of all, have uh, put provisions in that there's no private right of action, so you can't sue. Number one, they don't want to be sued. Right. So they have gotten that in all these this federal legislation. And federal legislation. The second thing that's really important that they do that that is also I think very anti-consumer is, they say that the state law will be preempted by the federal law. So what happens is we've had all these great laws that we've passed in the state of California. We're very privacy conscious. We've done tremendous things. We are the only state that has an office of privacy protection. So what happens is like we passed a law uh, in 2003 that if you were a victim of identity theft and you asked for your documents of the fraud, they had to give it to you within 10 days. And if they didn't, you could sue them. So when the federal legislation took over, they changed it to 30 days and you couldn't sue them. And that made all of these big companies happy. So that's why they're not consumer-oriented, because consumers are not united. They're not spending a lot of money to put these people into into their seats in the, you know, the Senate or, or the House. And unless it gets in the newspaper and there's a lot of media hype, they really will do what they need to do to stay in office. And that is really unfortunate. Yeah. So, so what's happening is, yes, we, we have a lot of talk on the Hill right now about a lot of things. And, and let's talk a little bit, Lloyd, about the security breach law, because that was like major. And it was a huge issue that, but for California law, you wouldn't know about these security breaches. So back in 2003, California passed a, a law that said that if you are a company or a governmental agency... And you find out that there was um, an acquisition of personal information, including like a social security number and personal information, birth date, social security number, and other sensitive information. If that was at one time in an electronic file and it was not encrypted, okay, and it's acquired by an unauthorized person, then that triggered a duty to dis- to notify any persons in- who had that in- information in that file. So we've heard about all of the employees of the state of California. Mm-hmm. We've heard about 1.2 million people who were affected by this, the loss of backup tapes by Bank of America. We found out about, you know, uh, 400,000 people whose information was uh, at 
acquired under uh, Wells Fargo and up to 60 million other people, you know, even, even Time Warner. Remember when I was on CNN and the people from Time Warner came, um, CNN came and they had all of their information stolen. The payroll information, which has your social security number, was stolen from Time Warner. Right. Okay. So this this law it only covers e-commerce though. So if somebody no, not e-commerce, it covers any information that at one time was in an electronic file. So if it was on a computer, even if it's printed out, okay. If it was electronic file. So if somebody if steals a banker box full of some uh, personal information. It didn't from- cover that. We tried to get that passed, by the way, but we we couldn't. But we got the first one. That was our security breach law. So listen mm-hmm. to this. So. After we passed that law, and the first big breach that you all heard about was the choice point thing, the choice point disclosed only to California residents to the to the tune of I think it was uh, I think they they disclosed to about forty or fifty thousand people. But the attorney generals in all the other states said, "Wait a minute, you're a national company. You must have had some of our citizens in there too." Mm-hmm. So they made a big brouhaha out of it and embarrassed the heck out of Choice Point and said, okay, you got to tell us too. So then Choice Point sent another, you know, 170,000 letters or whatever. And I don't know, since then they've sent another 17,000 and more letters. I don't know how many it's up to right now to people throughout the country for the security breach. So when Bank of America then was the next one to have a breach, they didn't want to get caught, you know, basically with their uh, pants down. So what they did was they also sent 1.2 million letters. And it was interesting because it was all federal employees. So a lot of the senators got those letters that their sensitive information was lost. You think that'd be a wake up call for them? Right. So, so this is what happened. That started everybody throughout the country getting notice of security breaches. And that started the chain of events, the domino of all these other companies, um, having to disclose to everyone who um, whose information was acquired by an unauthorized person. So what you can imagine what happened in Congress. There was a big backlash. So Bank of America went to testify, and I was there testifying in May. I remember. And Bank of America and all these big companies came and said, look, we believe that there should be a federal security breach law. Okay. I understand they don't want to have to deal with 50 different laws. That makes sense. But they said, we want the trigger to be this. If there is a security breach of sensitive information that's not encrypted, and we believe that the company itself believes that there's no reasonable risk of harm, then we won't disclose. Only if we believe that there's a reasonable risk of identity theft, that's how they're saying it, is that then we will disclose. Well, this is exactly what was happening before there was a law. They weren't disclosing anything because exactly. they, didn't, they didn't think it was good for business. Exactly. And, and see, what's interesting, when I testified in Congress, um, it, it, what happened was ChoicePoint and LexisNexis and Axiom, the biggest of the uh, information brokers that have tons and tons of data on each one of us, you know, and most of people don't even know who they are, um, when they had to disclose their breaches, Le- LexisNexis had 300,000 people that they had to disclose to, and um, as we talked about Joyce Point, uh, they admitted to the senators 
that they indeed had security breaches in the year 2002 and they never disclosed. And Axiom had to, had to admit that they had over a million people, I think it was almost two million people, that their information was acquired and they did not disclose. So, you know, for many years we've said a lot of people, ne most people never even find out how they became a victim of identity theft. And now we know why. Because your information can be acquired in, in your doctor's office, you know, in your dentist's office, uh, in your accountant's office, in your lawyer's office, at your university. Here we are sitting in the University of California, Irvine, and we know Berkeley had two big breaches. One was from uh, information acquired from the um, just a, a lost laptop, okay, and the other was another other types of security breaches. So it can it can happen in many ways. So what we're worried about right now is Congress is in the process of developing and passing new legislation dealing with security breach that. Is it's going to be worthless. It's probably going to be worthless or watered down. Less than what we have already here in the state yeah. of California. Yeah. So it's important that as you're listening to this, you you call up Senator Feinstein and because she has been at least very supportive of criminal uh, legis you know legislation to to pro you know prosecute criminals and, and other identity theft legislation. So at least call your your federal senators and congressman to tell them, hey, you know, I want get you on the to stick. get on the stick. We want a security breach law that matches California law. That's what you really need to be doing. And as far as the data brokers, that's a whole nother law. They don't want to be regulated at all. So we should talk, you know, we do we yeah. have time. We can talk a little bit about Ray's case. You got, you got 10 minutes left. So. Okay, good. All right. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Ray. Ray Lorenzo is a uh, Florida resident who contacted me, who found out that in uh, 1991, his ex-wife's ex-boyfriend committed felonies and was arrested using his name. The uh, arrest records were dismissed, um, and when this bad guy, Peter Pero, went to court, he was convicted of burglary, of um, armed robbery, all these terrible things. And, you know, my client, Ray, did not think at all anything about it because, you know, he, it was dismissed against him. He was never arrested. He, know, he knew that his name was used. Long story short and fast forwarding, Ray has had this. He also found out that he was the victim of financial identity theft to the tune of $30,000, which some stupid attorney told him to file bankruptcy, which, by the way, you should never do if you find out you're the victim of financial fraud. He also gets stopped one day in New York when he was living in prior to moving to Florida when he was in New York for not wearing his seatbelt and his license is taken away because he's told that he had many moving violations and he had not been carrying his license. So apparently this bad guy Peter Pirro had also had many vehicle violations that he was running away using Ray Lorenzo's name. So meanwhile, Ray's trying to get a job in 2000, you know, since 2000, the year 2000, and he can't. He finally got a degree, an IT degree, and we've interviewed him, by the way, on the show. And right. you can listen, by the way, if you go to KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy and you click on Lorenzo, you, you can see his bio and you can listen to his own story in his own words. 
So I have just been, uh, he hasn't been able to get a job, and he finds out that the conviction record in the databases say his name as the bad guy. No, you found out. He didn't yeah, find I out. Yeah, I found out. I found out, yeah, that the conviction record says Raymond Lorenzo, the convict, the, the felon, with Peter Perro, the bad guy, as the, the AK. AKA, when it was really... When I got the court file, which, by the way, only took me three months to get because they didn't want me to see it, when I get the court file from Suffolk County, New York, it says Peter Perro was convicted as himself. The certificate of conviction and commitment says Peter Perro. So I uh, have recently uh, been working on getting, I got the court records changed, and it was in the New York Times, and he's been on television and all that good stuff. But this is called this is criminal identity theft when someone steals your identity to commit crimes and then the data brokers sell this so you know now so many companies are asking for a background check right. so these data brokers don't want to be accountable okay so Raymond Lorenzo is applying for jobs authorizing a background check thinks he's going to get a job because he has all these credentials and he can't get a job everybody else in his class gets a job but him why doesn't he get it? He can't understand. He goes back to his school and he says, do a background check on me. I don't get this. The background check shows conviction. felony. Yeah. Felony convictions. So that's how he found out, which is one of the reasons why we are suggesting that the data brokers have oversight. And if you look at my website at identitytheft.org, you'll see my testimony in May of 2005 where I asked the Senate to pass a law that was introduced, a pass legislation that was introduced by Senator Bill Nelson of Florida to have oversight over the data brokers so that it's like they should be treated like a credit reporting agency, that you should be able to get your entire profile for free once a year like you can with a credit report. Right, and clean up the errors in it. Right, and then you see it before you apply for a job. You clean up the errors yourself. I mean, it'll it'll be a hard road. Because after looking at mine, I know that there's... There's so much inaccurate information on the thing, and there's no way to correct it, right? I mean, you can't call them up and say, hey, this is wrong, change it, and they won't do it. Yeah, that's the problem. There, there should be a duty to correct it. And by the way, when you, when you have this right, now I, I want to just explain something that's very important. You have a right to get your employment history for free, and I'm going to tell you guys how to do this, your, your landlord-tenant history for free, and your auto and home insurance history for free. And believe it or not, you can get that from ChoicePoint. So go to choicepoint.com. And in the upper right-hand corner, you're going to see uh, something that says FACTA Disclosure, F-A-C-T-A Disclosure. Click on FACTA Disclosure, and you can order for free those three reports. But you cannot order your entire profile from ChoicePoint or LexisNexis or any of the big data brokers like you can order for free your credit report. So before we end tonight, I want to tell everybody to make sure you also go. This is the, you know, we have a new year here in 2006. You should be getting your free credit report from each of the credit reporting agencies. Go to www.annualcreditreport.com. And there you can either call the toll-free number you're given or, which I gave you, Lloyd, because I always forget it, there is a toll-free number, or 
you can just order online at annualcreditreport.com. Here's the telephone number. It is 877-322-8228. You can order all three at once, TransUnion, Equifax, and Experian, or you can do it quarterly, one now, one in four months, and then another four months, and, and then you'll get all three of them. Well, good. Um, we got, uh, what, about three minutes left here? Um, yeah, so You want to go yeah. over some, like, prevention measures or something yeah, that people can do? Yeah. First of all, if you go to my website at identitytheft.org, which, by the way, is linked to KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy, um, you can look at our 70 pages of free information, and you can get some help there. But let me give you the top three things to do to protect yourself from identity theft. By the way, our book, Safeguard Your Identity, um, is on our website. And on that, we have 232 pages of things to do to protect yourself. But these are the top three things. Number one is don't give out your social security number to anybody that you don't need to. Redact it whenever you can. You don't use it for um, your health insurance anymore, so you really don't have to give it to your doctor. Only and also, never change it, right? Yeah. Never, never get a new one if you have a problem with your yeah, credit. Yeah, no, that'll only cause a tremendous amount of problem. Also, don't be stingy with your information. Don't be stingy with your family, but be stingy with all of your personal information. Don't give it out. Always ask, why do you need this? Don't give it out online. Don't give it off out on the phone. If someone calls you from pretending to be from a bank or, or you think it's your bank, always call back the number you know. And number three, get your credit reports immediately to review them. And some people like the idea of credit monitoring. And to me, that's, that's fine. You can do that and make sure that you look at what you're getting in the mail from your credit monitoring or online. And just be vigilant be stingy with that information and online when you go on your computer make sure that you're using um, an antivirus to check uh, anti-spyware and you know that you're not putting any sensitive information ever 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 into an email unless it's encrypted or at the very least you need to password protect it but we don't have a lot of time so we'll have to come back another time to just talk about yep. this stuff more stuff coming up you so Okay. What about, uh, well, let's talk about next week. Okay. Who's? We, well, next week, we're going to have another great, <laughs> I forgot who it is, but we are right. going to be having a, a fabulous show here from 5 to 6 p.m. We always talk about privacy issues at KUCI.org, and you can go and listen to our previous interviews because they are all streaming audio live on our, on our website at KUCI.org forward slash privacy piracy. We are also podcasting, so you can download to your iPod and listen while you're running or in your car. And uh, so please stay, come and visit us next week at Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. on Privacy Piracy. Thanks, Lloyd, for being a great host tonight. Well, and thanks for being a good guest. And, and, and a great engineer. <laughs> and all the good information. Yeah. And so uh, just remember to come and visit us at Privacy Piracy. Thank you for joining us. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.